after we had like 30 patients to see in the day, he said to me, if I was going into battle, I would want you as my general. At first I was like, oh, that's great. And then I thought, well, wait a second. He just compared taking care of patients to a battlefield. What is it about the environment we are putting incredibly amazing, talented, passionate humans into? And how is it shaping and changing them? And what can we do about that? Welcome to Humanizing Healthcare, where we talk with innovators and thought leaders who are working to make healthcare experiences more compassionate and rewarding for all. Our host is Chris Malone, founder of Fidelum Health and author of the award-winning book, The Human Brand, how we relate to people, products, and companies. Hi, I'm Chris Malone and I'll be your host for today's discussion. Before we start, I want to spotlight our program partnership with Plaintree and welcome their president, Michael Giuliano. For those who may not be familiar with them, Plaintree is a global not-for-profit organization dedicated to humanizing healthcare for everyone through excellence in person-centered care. Welcome to the program, Michael. Thank you, Chris, and appreciate you having me on board. And welcome everyone to this webinar. I'm very excited to have you all here and also to welcome a colleague, friend, and great thought partner, Dr. Adrian Boise, to this discussion. Adrian really brings and embodies the essence of the Plain Tree Person-Centered Care Framework, not only still as a practicing physician, but as a thought leader pushing the space about what it means to capture experience using data and evidence from patients and families to move this model of person-centered care forward. Today, we'll be talking with Dr. Adrian Boise. Chief Medical Officer at Qualtrics, a practicing Cleveland Clinic neurologist, TEDx speaker, and a former Chief Experience Officer. Dr. Boise is a thought leader on the role of empathy, communication, and relationship building in healthcare, and her work, her, her work has been featured in The Atlantic, The Washington Post, New England Journal of Medicine Catalyst. Welcome to the program, Dr. Boise. Thanks for having me, Chris. Can you tell us a little bit about your current role as Chief Medical Officer at Qualtrics and how you balance that with your role as being a practicing neurologist? Sure. Well, I love that you think there is balance. I call it boy <laughs> of imbalance. I, like many of you, I'm sure, have lots of different ways that I identify myself and how I want to contribute into the world. Um, the most important roles are about mom, partner, daughter, sister, uh, and actually those take a centrality, I think, in my life. And then the things I do or the hats I wear are adjacent to that, um, which are uh, caring for patients. Um, what a privilege I have to have a window into some of the most vulnerable moments people have who just happen to have a diagnosis. Um, and even more than that, how lucky am I that I get to care for them over time? It's not a transactional experience. I've known these patients for 23 years, many of them. Uh, which feels amazingly fulfilling. Uh, and then certainly is the role of uh, Chief Medical Officer at Qualtrics, uh, again, such a blessing uh, that I count in my life that I have the vantage point of an expanded aperture into other industries as well as healthcare who are prioritizing relationships uh, and experiences. So I don't know. The joy of imbalance, there is no, I used to like look at some people and think they had it together because they had matching socks and their hair looked really nice. And, you know, you put on a blazer, you look like you got it all together, but let's be honest, 
you know, right now my kid is sick at school. I'm ignoring his phone calls. <laughs> I'm calling a neighbor to help go pick him up, like while I'm trying to look like a professional here. So it's it's all kind of really a mess. And that's life, isn't it? I think you're absolutely right. We're all just doing the best we can to keep up the facade, right? And well, I really I don't I don't even want to keep up a facade. Like, let's be honest. It's just a mess. And I can I can look like I got it together for an hour, but then it, it's all going to come crumbling. And if we were all a bit more honest about that, I think w- it would be validating probably for many of us. That's right. Why should we feel the need to keep up a facade, right? There you go. Good point. You also mentioned, um, you know, the, the, the concept of relationships, which I think is really going to be a, a central theme in our discussion today. So I think that's a really good start. I would also love to know if there's a story you can share about how you came to work in healthcare and why you chose it. There are a lot of great stories, I think, that I've had um, or lived through, um, some of which I've told before. So I was really noodling on this one. Like, what would I tell you? Um, And the story I think I'm going to tell you is about applying, actually, for medical school. I had sort of this twisty path. Um, first, I thought I was going to be a ballerina, and then I realized I was a good ballerina, but not great. And so I deviate. I was going to boarding school in Boston. I changed my mind. I went back to Maryland and started going to regular high school, taught ballet, and then later went back up to Boston for college. And then I still didn't really know what I wanted to do. And so I um, uh, took some grad classes in neuroscience and met some patients who had some devastating neurologic injuries. And I was stunned with how plastic the brain was and how people could adapt around profound deficits um, and still function. I was really like the, the, and I hate the word resilience, but like the resilience of the brain was really interesting to me for some reason. And I just sort of noted that, but I put it in my pocket and kept going. And then I, um, I thought, well, if I'm interested in neuroscience, you know, maybe I should do some research. I've never done that before. And so I spent some time in bench, I know we'll talk about this too, in bench, doing bench work um, and decided that wasn't for me. And so anyway, by the time I got my act together and decided I was going to apply to med school, I figured like everybody's writing these essays and everybody's got the scores. Like, how do you possibly differentiate yourself on paper? And again, rather than sort of trying to come up with some perfectly crafted and edited essay, I just told the story of my upbringing, which was really messy and um, tumultuous and traumatic at times, at least in my perspective. And I thought, you know, if you want to know who I am, here it is. And I <laughs> I just put it, put out, it there. out there. And it was emotional and hard. And I thought this would be good. I'm going to have some meaningful conversations about this. And as many people may go, I interviewed at easily 15, maybe medical schools on your own dime, you know, traveling around the country when I have no money. And um, not a single person asked me about my essay, not a single one. And actually that was an incredibly dehumanizing experience because here I was tromping around in a suit, you know, trying to make a major decision in my life. And it felt incredibly sterile that we'd be having conversations around. I I got questions instead, like, 
what would you do if a patient came into the emergency room with a blood pressure of 222? And I remember thinking like, I don't know. Isn't that what I'm trying to go to med school to answer? Or, you know, uh, oh, you used to be a ballerina. You know, would you mind doing a dance? Uh, which I'm pretty sure wasn't legal. Anyway, so <laughs> not only did I like, I walked out of that interview, uh, um, maybe more dramatically, but I, I was left feeling like deflated, actually. And on my last interview, I had been in Boston for about 10 years. And the last place I interviewed was Penn State. And I thought to myself, like, I'm never going to Penn State. Why am I even interviewing? It's in Hershey, Pennsylvania. Like, it's not Nittany. I don't care about football. Like, why would I go here? And so I almost canceled. And my mom was like, you know, you you need to do this. Like, just finish it out strong. And I was like, okay, fine. So I go and I walk into my very first interview and the woman, she was the head of infectious disease. She flings open the door and she says, I have been waiting all day to meet you. And I'm like, really? Because nobody says that. And she said, I was wondering why you think it is that some people thrive out of trauma and others collapse. And it was like that Jim Carrey movie moment where the 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 pets land on him and the doors flung open and what well, I forget what movie that is, but the light is shining and mm-hmm. it was really it was a fantastic moment that I felt uh human again and seen and uh it changed uh the like my career. Like I, I went there against all of my better urgings <laughs> because of that moment and that person and that question. So wow, that, that that sounds like she really made not only made an impact on you, but could have, you know, you might have walked away from medical school if you'd had more experiences like the ones beforehand. Yeah, absolutely. If they were looking for sterility and lack of emotion and scores um, in the absence of a human attached to them, I was not going to I just had this dawning that maybe I wasn't going to be the right person. Well, I'm so glad that she was there and that you made the choice that you did because of all the great things that you have contributed thus far. You mentioned one um, point earlier in in your story that you spent a little time doing kind of lab research or bench research and science. And I'm wondering, you know, given the work that you do now, did that have any impact on your orientation or, or shape your approach today in any way? A few things that bench side research taught me. Um, one is, um, but I don't mean to sound like oversimplistic, but one is humility, right? In in bench side research, you try things and you try things and you take detailed notes and you write it all down. And a lot of the times it fails. And then you have to go back and read your notes and try to reproduce exactly what you did with just a little tweak or a change to see if it will work the second time, the third time, the fourth time. And so some people say, I'm a really strong person, which I appreciate, but that came from, A, I've been lifted by other people, but B, it came from, I think that sort of like okayness with part of being rigorous, part of having a process, part of testing your thinking and hypotheses is testing, testing, failing, failing, testing, failing. <laughs> and I, I I think I attribute it to that. Um, the other piece was 
there were some brilliant scientist minds, um, like academics, who ran the lab or other colleagues in the lab, um, who were also just extraordinary humans. I mean, had I had they not given me a chance, I worked at Brigham and Women's and then later at Boston University. Um, I I don't think I would have found my way, right? Because I was sort of biology. What do I do? Maybe it's research. Maybe it's neuroscience. Maybe it's psychology. And I really feel like they, I don't know, tolerated isn't the right word, but they supported me recognizing probably earlier than I did that it wasn't going to be my future running gels and sequencing DNA. But they, we learned something from each other, I think. Uh, and I'm I'm very grateful for people who afforded me opportunities that just contributed to a, a depth of my perspective. Um, I mean, who gets to say that, right? That they worked with rats in a lab and ran agar gels and sequenced DNA at 3 a.m. in the dark in your lab. Like <laughs> that, um, and maybe that's the last point, was just an appreciation for uh, I think the rigor and the clinical equipoise is a term that's used in research, which is you don't know the right answer. You're actually running the experiment to test the hypothesis. Is it true? People want to have a good experience. <laughs> I, and without having an opinion, you test the answers to that. And I think that amount of rigor is really interesting to me now, even as we think about biases or perspectives, rose code glasses we may be wearing that we don't even realize? And how could we approach that with a research mind? How could we stay curious? That That is something else that I learned. That's outstanding. And you've, it's kind of a reoccurring theme here, right? In both of those stories, you talked about the people that you met who influenced your career and the relationship you formed with them. And I think that is kind of a, and the idea that we could take a more science-based approach to not only that in our personal lives, but how we deliver patient experience, I think is a great segue. You know, uh, arguably over the last few years, it seems there's kind of growing in idea in healthcare needs to become more relationship oriented, more human, kind of less impersonal, less transactional. And I'm wondering what your thoughts on are on this. Does you know patient experience and caregiver experience matter to patients and caregivers the way that you know we we've described so far? When I think about my experience in healthcare, I think I was always human. Like I was always caring. I never meant to be transactional. Like those are never intentions I had. Right. Um, I think if you take a hard look at the literature on burnout, right, it's, it's a system problem, not an individual problem, which I don't want to over or understate that, the research is clear that you can take amazing humans who do have the intent to care and put them in an environment that changes the way they show up. I've shared this story before, but in early in my career uh, as a resident, when I became a senior resident, I was working with someone who had trained as a staff anesthesiologist in a different country and then was repeating their training here. Bless him. And, um, uh, he said to me one day after we had like 30 patients to see um, in the day, he said to me, you know, um, if I was going into battle, I would want you as my general. At first I was like, oh, that's great. Like I'm efficient and I can get things done and make decisions. And 
And then I thought, well, wait a second. Like he feel he just compared like taking care of patients to a battlefield. Mm. Um, and so I think I think when we ask questions like you've asked, which are good questions, staying curious about the environment. What is it about the environment we are putting incredibly amazing, talented, passionate humans into? And how is it shaping and changing them? And what can we do about that? Um, I've written other pieces around, you know, please don't send me to yoga or art therapy. Like this is not about me not being a resilient person. I took the MCATs multiple times. I took multiple, you know, step exams. I studied for years. I gave up relationships. I moved multiple times. I paid out of my own bike. Like I am a resilient human. Uh, And if we could start with that premise that we have resilient beings who are now depleted and stay curious about how did that on earth possibly happen? That feels like the more interesting question. I think you're right, right on point in the sense that it's not the people so much you know, the, the caregivers and the patients both come to the experience hoping for a connection. And it's more often the environment or the policies, practices, processes, or systems that we are asking people to use for, you know, reporting purposes or payment purposes or productivity or throughput or what have you, that makes it feel more transactional. Yeah. And I would offer, there's still a tremendous amount of hope, right? Like my my one thing I learned later, which we may talk about, is this notion of I think one thing both people want is not just connection, but relationship. And I, I don't use that word glibly or lightly, that if we deeply understand the science around relationships, we would understand that they can be incredibly powerful vehicles for healing, not just of patients, but of ourselves and our colleagues. Um, And you saw that in, I think, many successful examples of peer support programs or psychological PPE during COVID, where we leveraged relationships and in a really interesting way that healed and can continue to heal. And so how might we imagine a system that instead of, of depleting restores, how can we imagine operations that bake that in? to create healing moments. That is something I'm really interested in now. Excellent. Well, let's shift gears a little bit and talk, you know, um, in the direction of measurement. You recently co-authored an article in New England Journal of Medicine Catalyst on the use of likely to recommend measures in healthcare settings. And the article highlights kind of the benefits and the limitations of likely to recommend as a patient experience measure. And I'm wondering kind of, is that a good measure of relationships or what are some ways that maybe we can use likely to recommend, you know, to deliver better experiences? Yeah, well, as a neurotic neurologist, as I like to say, I was really fascinated um, with the confusion in the market around uh, NPS uh, versus likelihood to recommend questions um, that have various language and various scales. You know, these are not equivalent questions. And the amount of research and validity to them is quite different. And as many of you may already know, right, NPS was originally derived from Bain as a uh, willingness. uh, If you scored high on NPS, it was associated with a willingness, um, not a willingness, an actual repurchase of a product within 11 of 14 industries. Okay, well, none of those industries were healthcare. 
And we all know if you're listening to this, that healthcare's product <laughs> is not something we always want people repurchasing. Like, did you like your ER visit the other day? Would you recommend it to somebody else? No, I wouldn't. Um, and so the value equation, I think, doesn't quite work um, for other consumer industries because in healthcare, we're trying to drive safety quality experience at a at a better cost, right? And that's the real value. And so, um, and sprinkle on top outcomes, right? So that's a more complex equation in my mind. And so I was fixated on that question and I was talking to leaders who also weren't clear about what they were asking about, or they were asking the NPS over here, but the likelihood to recommend over there. And, <laughs> and you know, variability is the enemy of quality, right? Like if we don't know what we're asking and we don't know why we're asking it and we don't ask it all the time, we're not going to have a clear vision of all the process steps in a patient or an employee journey for that matter. And so the paper really tries to outline the evidence around each, where it makes sense and where it doesn't, who's using what, and what do we know it's associated with. Um, and in healthcare, I think it's an interesting question of trust, right? Like, um, And it also matters how much you trust or may appreciate, like, I may recommend an ER visit to you, Chris, but something different to Michael, <laughs> you know, like, because I know Michael differently. Michael's a different person than you. What I might recommend to you may not work for him. And so I think there's so many nuances to recommend, right? Most people would recommend Dr. Boise. Well, I don't know. I'm, I'm just making up a name, right? Like you may recommend Dr. Sands, but you don't recommend the brand that he works for, right? So the layers of that are really interesting. And so not to give you too much of a deep insight into my brain, this was a very interesting question. And I feel like it's a pivotal moment to answer in healthcare. If you're hoping to compare across industries, which I do think there's tremendous value in, then we should be asking a question that resonates with those other industries and being careful about understanding its utility in healthcare. So my advice is, if you're going to use a likelihood to recommend question, use the same scale, ask it at nearly every touch point. You could rotate open-end comments, right? So you could get more color around it. But you deeply want to understand the drivers of, of that, what actually influences that at each process step. And then you want to translate that in terms of visual management at an executive level and at a local level, meaning likelihood to recommend doesn't mean anything to the PA on a neurology unit. I have to understand what is the driver that I can influence through my behavior to do today to have an impact on that executive level score. And I, I think thinking thoughtfully about the approach there really matters if we're if we're just interchanging these questions as they're all the same thing and aren't following it up with the driver analysis and the visual management and improvement tactics. I, I don't think we'll see a real change. Yeah, I think you make a good point that if we want to benchmark against other industries, there's widely available data likely to recommend and NPS can be a good measure of that. But I think in addition to that, as you've mentioned earlier, you know, I think it is possible to measure the strength of our relationships. And I think yeah. that is something that we can see not only in healthcare, but that turns out in the work that we've done, even in surprising places where you'd think we're by definition transactional, 
people can give you a feedback on a relationship. And it turns out even in products or services where we don't meet the people, we feel like we have a relationship with the people on the other side that is predictive of our behavior. So I think the two together can, you know, not only can give us benchmarking, but remind us that what we're after is a relationship because that's what's going to make the impact. Yeah, it's a great, I'd love to deep dive on that with you because I think there's, I've seen multiple proposed metrics trying to get at the strength of a relationship. And once, sometimes I really do wonder, right? Are we trying to measure the immeasurable um, or can we, can we scale? Can we all agree? We'd all have to agree on a certain measurement of relationships, right? right? To really have the impact that we're all wanting to have. And I feel like we're still a little scattered in our approaches. Yeah, good point. Let's shift over into communication. I imagine communication plays a big role in relationships. And you have written in your book, Communication the Cleveland Clinic Way, all about the clinician curriculum that you've developed around communication. I'm wondering how you you see that fitting in. And is that something that really can a, a big factor in how we build the relationships that we want? I think something you and I have resonated around is the notion that people behave differently in relationships. And there's and there's a whole body of of work, if you haven't read it, uh, by Beach and Anui about relationship-centered communication. And some of the components of relationships, which they highlight, which maybe I had never spent a lot of time on before, but were highlighted to me by a fabulous colleague. We're around, you know, relationships usually have a shared goal, right? We're trying to partner together, marry and create a family, <laughs> or we're trying to achieve better health outcome. Um, uh, so shared goals is an important piece of it. There's reciprocal influence. You influence me, I influence you. So we both have some responsibility there. And a third one, which I really love, is the therapeutic nature of relationships. Relationships in and of themselves have therapeutic potential and for both parties. And we already touched on that a little bit before. Um, but as we trained and began training clinicians, um, some ahas I would highlight for this audience. One is um, we trained over, you know, tens of thousands of clinicians, both in Cleveland and at other organizations, as well as around the globe. And we published um, a study looking at um, controlling for all other demographics um, comparing about 1,500 staff physicians to a group of 1,500 staff physicians of people who had gone through the training and who didn't. And what we saw is you can improve validated scales of self-efficacy, of empathy, and using the patient perspective who was blinded to who got the training and who didn't see significant improvement in inpatient and outpatient patient satisfaction scores. And um, within a short term, you could see a significant improvement in burnout, specifically emotionally exhaustion. So what does all that tell you? Well, it tells you that there's something here. Um, and the aha for me wasn't around, we just need more reflective listening training, uh, or, you know, let's just do more teachbacks. Uh, it's actually that, what I heard, what we heard from clinicians, which is who we started with, was these incredible stories of suffering and trauma that had nowhere else to go. And when put in a safe, small group facilitated environment, these stories bubbled up like bath bubbles. I mean, everyone had one about a traumatic event about a memory of a patient. I mean, 
someone told a story of a a child whose parents hadn't arrived in the ER yet, and that child died in their arms in the emergency room. Um, another one told a story of, of one of their very first operations, and their patient died on the table, and they didn't have anybody to talk to about it. And they went out and told the family, and the whole family collapsed on the ground, started screaming, and they were standing there by themselves. Um, and, and I mean, I could just go on and on and on, like uh, ER leaders resuscitating a colleague in the ER for hours after that person unfortunately had passed. These are the stories that people cannot tuck back in. They cannot put them back in their pocket and keep going. Um, It hurts people. It erodes their humanity. And when we treat it as another day in the ER, I think we have to be prepared for the devastating consequences of what that means for human beings. And that isolation, that depletion, that invisibility is, is a cost that is just massive and heartbreaking. So not to sit in that dark space too much, but to tell you that There's plenty of literature. What I tapped into was, wait a second, these people haven't had these very skills we're trying to teach them to use with patients modeled to them in their entire career. So actually what we tapped into was you can use using that vehicle as a mechanism to care for our people. And that just blew my mind and completely disrupted the course of my career because I I thought there's I don't want to do any other work. That's it right there. That is what I'm going to spend the rest of my life doing is thinking about anything I want to do for patients through the lens of a chief experience officer I'm going to bring to employees. Any training has to be cross-referenced. Any department I stand up has to serve both, whether it's patient relations or end of life or research efforts or anything. We are going to attend to the employee experience as we try to drive a patient experience. And that may not sound like an aha for any of you who have deep understanding of customer experience, but at the time, we didn't talk about our own experiences very much. That was, what, 2010? And so that was just, just aha, aha, aha. That was, I think that's, that's the beauty of it is that not only are the things that you're doing to get the patient the experience that they need and expect, it has equal benefits for the care provider. And those connections and those relationships are the emotional fuel that they need to avoid burnout and feel like they're making a difference for people. Then that's why they came to healthcare. Yeah. And isn't the question then, Chris, like, why are we so comfortable continuing to separate them? Like, I, what, what, what are we thinking that patients are these weird people that sit over here and have all those demanding people who have expectations about, you know, feeling cared for or getting the job to be done done, and employees don't have the same. Um, I think, as you probably well know. Right, the the future is a much more holistic look at not only the relationships between the two, uh, but efforts that amplify and lift both in a much more. Um, I mean, if we're all exhausted and depleted, right? Having six different initiatives, three for employee experience and three for patient experience, is not a good use of brain power. 
we should have three that drive both uh, is much more effective when we're thinking strategically about effort and time and brain bandwidth, which people just don't have today. That's right. And I think the work that Qualtrics does is a great ex- example of that, that they're looking at experiences across a whole spectrum of different you know, stakeholders and so forth. And I imagine that kind of starting to work with Qualtrics coming from healthcare, you've now been exposed to a very much broader range of experience, insights, and so forth. And I'm wondering, are there anything new or, or surprising or uh, interesting that you have picked up you know, from your exposure to the other parts of the world that Qualtrics serves? Well, yeah. So, I mean, what a cool place, right? That I get to still practice as a neurologist and have this different lens to the world around experiences. The first thing that I'm struck by when I look at other industries is they aren't debating the value of customer experience. (laughs) They aren't unsure. They aren't doing it because it's a government mandate. They're doing it because they recognize delivering an extraordinary experience is a differentiator for their business and their bottom line. Oftentimes in healthcare, we're still unsure. And that is demonstrated by the fact that we still define patient experience as HCAP's performance. Mm -hmm. As long as we continue to do that, we will underappreciate, underestimate the actual impact that I think we can see more clearly in other industries. Um, Uh, Some good examples recently that I've heard, and especially as you see more clinicians cross over, um, it's a really interesting time. Like never before have I seen the amount of sort of shifting that's happening. Um, I think about companies like uh, Coca-Cola, who um, has uh, launched and deployed a much more holistic, in-moment, omni-channel listening strategy for its employees and has the highest employee engagement it's ever had. Yeah, I think about um, Delta, who um, not only became the world's most admired airline um, and plays music now when you enter the plane and has full service on your mobile device, um, but is driving... um, in part with Qualtrics, right? Uh, proactive service recovery, rebooking your flight, even though it's a highly regulated industry that can't control the weather and can't control all these other variables. They're trying uh, to solve some of the biggest pain points, the pebbles in people's shoes. Um, I think about uh, things I've learned from uh, um, Chipotle or Starbucks around talking about human connection when you your product is a cup of coffee, but you're selling human connection. That's right. Or, or something I learned about Chipotle the other day where they um, they make a fully transparent path for employees as to how they can grow and thrive. Have you ever had that? Did anybody ever come to you and say, if you stay here three years, here's what the ladder looks like and here's where you'll be in terms of... South- I mean, just stunning investments in... Um, people and efforts. Um, Delta also gave free mental health care to its employees. Um, uh, so I, it could go on and on. I think UPS, right, is doubling down on gratitude in really creative ways um, for in-moment customer recognition of their drivers who probably don't often feel really celebrated and appreciated. Um, and these aren't like willy-nilly examples. These are 
large scale, hundreds of thousands of employees, world-class brands um, that are doing things. And there's not a single thing I mentioned that healthcare couldn't double down on. Right. Every example I just gave, gratitude, proactive service recovery, um, different ways of listening to your employees, as well as mental health checks. Like these are, these, this is what we do. Uh, so a tremendous opportunity to cross-reference and learn. That's great. That's great. Now, um, given what the range of experiences you've had and what you've learned, particularly in, in your work in, in patient experience and um, employee engagement, what advice, if any, would you offer to other healthcare professionals that want to kind of build on and apply the things that you've seen and learned at Qualtrics and Cleveland Clinic? Any kind of, you know, key points, things to focus on, watch outs, anything like that? I have to imagine that most people don't want advice. Nobody likes to be told what <laughs> what to do or how to do it. If I had some things that I could reflect on that have worked for me um, that I would offer for consideration, they would be things like, it's incredibly important, I find, and I didn't do this till later in my career, but I would encourage people to do it now, um, which is mapping a joy pie. Um, take a piece of paper, today, tomorrow, and all this time you spend building strategic plans for your patient experience or employee programs or whatever else you do, that's all great. But those are for the service of others. I want you to think about your strategic plan for yourself. If you think about the next decade of your career, how do you want to dedicate your attention units to live a life filled with joy for yourself, what would that look like? What would those, how big would those pie slices be? And to what end? How, do you make it to Pilates class every week? Do you show up at the police station and deliver cookies to be a better member of your community? Are you putting your phone down when you're with your kid? You know, I think our ability to anchor in what's most important for us. And I, I have one that I look at on a regular basis when faced with big decisions or when I'm at a value rub to really say, like, what 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 am I doing? <laughs> what am I doing this for? Um, what's next? What's around the corner? Is it in line with my personal joy pie? And if it's not, and I'm not interested in changing my joy pie, then it just doesn't work for me. That's a great, and great idea. That was an incredibly important exercise when I was thinking about transitioning jobs once to sort of say like, what? Because I kept getting stuck on what title do I need and how many people should be on my team? And dar, 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 dar. Uh, and that's not the question. The question is, does this next opportunity allow me to more fully live my joy pie? And not just because my joy pie is about me. I mean, on my joy pie is reducing suffering of others. Okay, well then, does this job really take me to the next level? Is it consistent with who I want to be as a human and a professional? And we all know from recent employee experience data, the more your personal values are reflected in the job you're able to do, the profession, um, the role you have, the more you're going to take off like a rock star. So um, that alignment, I think, has been great. When I was interviewing for a job, somebody said, you know, we're a tech company, though. You know, <laughs> we don't know about all this empathy and 
And I said, I said, don't worry. You know, I've already mapped my joy pie and you're just a piece of it. You're not my whole joy. And if you think you will be, then we're not the right fit. And then I, and then I met the CEO, Zig Serafin, who um, we had a deep, rich conversation around joy and our contributions to humanity, not about software. Uh, and, and that was it. That was like a light bulb moment for me where I was like, yep, he gets it. You know, we're aligned. I feel great about this. I'm going, uh, even though I was afraid. Terrific. We look forward to kind of picking up on that thread. Now, we haven't seen any questions come through, but just I'll ask you one more and give folks an opportunity to uh, ask a question. You know, just our final question. Do you have a favorite quote you can share? And if so, why is it your favorite quote? Uh, sure. When I was walking in, uh, I took a bike trip to uh, Seattle, like the islands, Orca Islands, mm -hmm. uh, off the coast of Washington. One time, and I passed by this rock, and somebody had painted on it, change is inevitable, growth is optional. And I thought, oh, that makes me really uncomfortable. But that's pretty amazing. And uh, isn't that the truth? There's change every single day, every single conversation nearly, uh, every year, every month, every airplane ride, something is different. And we have much more locus of control as to what we do with that than I think we think. So that resonates with me deeply. I love that one. Hey, well, thanks so much for sharing your time and insights with us today. It's been fantastic. You are a really important voice in the conversation about humanizing healthcare and elevating experiences. I'm sure our listeners would agree with we look forward to looking at your progress and innovations at Qualtrics going forward. To our listeners today, thank you joining us for joining us as well. We hope you found our discussion informative and inspiring. And be sure to join us for our next Humanizing Healthcare discussion. We'll be talking with Dr. Dana Safran, President and CEO of the National Quality Forum. You won't want to miss it. Thanks very much, Dr. Boise. Have a terrific day. Thanks. Take care, everybody. Thanks for listening today. If you enjoyed this episode of Humanizing Healthcare, please give it a rating, share it with others, and follow us at Fidelum Health on LinkedIn. And make sure you join us next time as we share more insights from another inspiring healthcare leader and innovator.